today, shall we? And it's from 1 Peter chapter 2. And that's from verse 4 to verse 10 we're going to read from today. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, we thank you so much for the amazing privilege it is to stand in your presence and to worship your holy name. And Lord, we thank you so much for the the joy that it is to read your word, to be passionate about your word and to be passionate about growing closer to you and closer to who you are. Father, we thank you so much for this church family that we can come together, that we can corporately worship you and that we can learn from each other, we can grow with each other. We thank you for our ladies, ladies' Bible study um, and the faithful study of your word every single week, for the opportunity to grow in our passion for your word and knowledge of who you are as we seek to grow to be more like you. And Father, we thank you for those attending baptismal classes. We pray for them as they go through these classes and, and make that public statement of faith in you. And those attending our Hope Explored classes on a Tuesday, we thank you so much um, for the brilliant attendance every single week. Um, we pray that as these classes go on for the next couple of weeks, that they would really make a difference to people, that you would speak through them and that you would change their lives. And Father, once again, we pray that we would come ready to hear your word this morning, but not only hear it, but we pray that you would change us through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you very much, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Great to be together again today. Please open your Bibles at that passage that Andrew read to us earlier on in 1 Peter 2. We have to be ready for a bit of deft footwork this morning, the kind you might see along at, Baldwell Park, uh, at uh, Douglas Park on a wet Wednesday night, if you're fortunate. Um, a bit of deft footwork in 1 Peter. We were looking last week and thinking of how Peter began to turn his attention uh, at the midpoint in chapter 2 away from the uh, away from the experience of every genuine Christian in the first kind of 21 verses to the corporate experience of every genuine church from verse 22 on and that's where we're going to pick up today and the picture if you remember that Peter painted for us last week was of the church as a family it's a beautiful picture it was a great picture the church as a family there was evidence of new life as you get in a family, new life by the imperishable word of God. There was evidence of real love. 
that you would want to find in a family as we treat our brothers and sisters well in the family of God. And there was evidence of this deep longing for the pure spiritual milk that we might increasingly be satisfied by the goodness of God. And that's where we uh, left off last week. I, I'd spoken a little bit last Sunday, if you happen to remember, about my longings. We were thinking about that verse about longing for the pure spiritual milk. And I talked about my longings when I was a bit peckish on my way home after a busy day and how uh, my longings tend to be for a, a, a crunchy rather than a carrot. And I was presented with this longing test at the growth group I attended on Wednesday evening as we went for our supper at the end. I was told, oh, Craig, this is your plate. And there it was, the carrot and the crunchy. And I'll leave you to decide which one I opted for if I made a choice at all and which one I left for Rudolph next Christmas Eve. But there's a clue in that, I suppose. But now we move in a single bound from this picture of a family household. We're going to the building site today and next Sunday. We're going to site visit to a construction site. We're moving from this picture of the church being a family to the picture of belonging to the church as a living stone in its foundation. Now, this is very rich teaching, as you might have spotted already, as Andrew read these verses to us this morning. In fact, there is so much of tremendous importance for us to understand that I propose to have a second crack at this section next week. So having had weeks when we only did one or two or three verses, you might have been a bit surprised when we read from four down to ten today, but I'm going to have two cracks at this in order to understand it. Today I'm going to bypass the radical redefinition of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices that we read about in verse 5. Pray about that, read about that, come next week, it is absolutely mind-blowing. Verse 5 and verses 9 and 10 reshape reality for us in terms of what the church is. And there's so much in it, I couldn't do it along with what I want to look at today. And it's so practical for how we conduct ourselves as a church. It's absolutely down to earth and practical. So that's next week, God willing. Hopefully, doing it over two weeks will give us a chance to digest what Peter is saying to us. So today, we're going to find our bearings in the remainder of this section that was read. As we literally turn our eyes upon Jesus, what a great song to sing as we come to this passage now. And we're going to see what Peter means by the Lord Jesus in this foundational role as the living stone, verse 4, the cornerstone, verses 6 and 7, and the stumbling stone, verse 8. So that's our simple structure for today. Let's think about, number one, what it means for the Lord Jesus to be the living stone. Now, the, the concept of a living stone is a bit extraordinary, isn't it? It might seem a bit strange to us, but Peter, as always, is on really solid ground and he's going to build his case. He's going to layer the picture for us so that we have a much fuller understanding as we move through this text. So have a look with me at verse four there. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And he goes on in verse 5 to unpack that massive significance of Jesus being the living stone for us. But we'll come to that, God willing, next week. We're going to stop there at verse 4 for now, and we're going to let verse 4 set our parameters. Now, just look at it with me, and, and look at the beautiful simplicity 
in the way that Peter expresses an incredible privilege that we've had already this morning in the first five words. As you come to him. As you come to him. That's what we're able to do every day on our own, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, middle of the day, any time in the day, wherever we may be, don't have to come to a special building to do it, we come to him. That's what we're able to do every time we meet on Sundays like this. From the beginning, Andrew led us in hearing about the Lord Jesus from the Word, from the Old and the New Testament, and everything is about us coming to him. But it's also like that when we gather for a planning meeting or for a finance meeting or for a build project meeting. We come to him. And Peter says, the one to whom we come is a living stone. And immediately we know that it's the Lord Jesus he's writing about because of this emphasis on the living thing. Because it's, it's miraculous that Jesus is living. He was brutally and judicially murdered. He was a corpse. He lay in the grave. They came to embalm his remains. But now he's alive again, as we've just sung. A living stone. And of course, that's the core of the Christian life and hope. Peter has sounded this trumpet blast from the very outset of his letter. Do you remember when we were away back last autumn in the beginning of this series, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. How? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So Peter loves to talk about the, the risen Lord Jesus. And when he calls Jesus a living stone, he is reminding us that he died and our living hope, our living hope is that he's not dead now. Nonetheless, verse 4, the historic fact of him being rejected, which precipitated his death, led to his death, runs all the way through this section. And what Peter establishes here is the polar values set on the Lord Jesus. North Pole, South Pole, you can't get further apart than that in this world. And he says there are there are two values set on Jesus and you couldn't get them further apart. I suppose this happens all the time in day-to-day -day life, isn't it? When we don't really know how properly to value something. When the value isn't properly understood. I guess you all know the old classic gag about the man who's finally invited to his boss's home for uh, dinner and he's having a lovely evening and he's admiring a vase that was on the sideboard one minute, and as he admires it, it slips from his hands and has smashed the smithereens in the floor. And the boss is so horrified, he can hardly get breath, and he just whispers that it, the vase had been in the family for, it was an heirloom, and it was thought to be centuries old. And then the man feels a sense of relief when he says, well, thank goodness it wasn't new. <laughs> I know, it's a rotten joke. I, it wasn't even, thank you for laughing. It wasn't even worthy of a laugh. But, but we can be like that. We can be clueless about the actual treasures that we're dealing with in life. And not just things. Opportunities. I look back on opportunities I had. And I set them at zero in terms of importance. And I wish now I'd made more of them. 
I think back about people who were in my life. And it's not that I set them at zero, but I kind of half listened. I wish I'd listened. Life's like that all the time. We're setting values on things and opportunities and people and experiences. And sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. And here in verse 4, Peter marvels at the fact that the one to whom our creator accords the highest worth is regarded by his creatures as being of no worth. A reject. Isn't that astonishing? As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, we're about to see what God has achieved through the rejection of his beloved son. We're about to see that God was absolutely in control of the rejection of Jesus as much as he was in control of those who received the Lord Jesus. But before that, I wonder, can you see why Peter would want to make this emphasis in verse 4? Why would he want to remind his readers that the Lord Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious? Wouldn't it be because his readers, the original recipients of this letter, those on whose doorsteps this letter first arrived, wouldn't it be because they are rejected by the culture? And to a greater or lesser degree, all down through history, right up to this morning, the modern day readers of this letter, if we are followers of the Lord Jesus, also feel rejected by the culture, rejected by men and women. Now we'll see it in context when we, when we finally get to chapter 4, but glance ahead just for a moment to chapter 4, verse 4, if you can flick there in your Bibles this morning, where Peter's writing about this kind of rejection of believers in the world and speaking of the kind of environment in which we live, the, the, the way people live around us who don't know the Lord, he says, with respect to this, they, that is those who reject Jesus, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. So there's a flood of debauchery going on and they're a bit surprised when the Christians don't just join in. And then that final sentence in verse four, and they malign you. It's not that they say, well, fair play, you do your thing, we'll do ours. No, they, they malign you. They hate you for it. They're critical of you. They reject you. Now that's, that's tough. And I, I mentioned it this morning for us to feel again the reassurance of verse 4 of chapter 2 where we are. That rejection is hard to live with. Some of you this morning as I, as I described that situation know exactly what it's like. But Peter would remind his readers today that in the midst of the misery of that mistreatment, maybe from family members who don't know the Lord or from friends or neighbors or colleagues or whoever it is in your life who's giving you a bit of a hard time about this, he would remind us that this is how the Lord Jesus was treated. He would remind us that you are following in his steps and just like him, you are rejected by men and women perhaps in this world, maligned for the life you live and the, and the way you trust and love Jesus, but you are chosen and precious to God. You're elect exiles. And his word tells us that this is going to be our experience. And because Jesus is the living stone back from the dead, the force of the rejection he experienced was undone. And so will the force of the rejection you experience 
brother and sister. It's going to be undone one of these days. Because his resurrection is the solid hope of our lives. So, number one, living stone. Number two, cornerstone. So now we drop to verse six. I can't wait to get back to verse five. But let's see the flow. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse six. Why would he say that? For it stands in scripture. Now let's just pause there for a moment because I love that emphasis on God's word standing. Don't you? I love that emphasis. It stands in scripture. The grass withers and the flowers fall, we saw last week, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So Peter, now as he's about to quote from Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 that Andrew read to us at the beginning of our meeting this morning, Peter knows that Isaiah wrote that, and we all know this stat now because we've been banging on about it all Christmas as we, as we looked in Isaiah 7, but we know it's 700 years or more, seven, between 7 and 750 years before Peter lived that Isaiah wrote these words. And as he quotes Isaiah, Peter knows this still stands. Seven and a half centuries later, this still stands. And we're reading Peter's reflection on something that was 700 years old to him. We're reading it 2,000 years after Peter wrote it, and it still stands. Have a look at it there. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. And then he quotes from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion. Zion is an Old Testament name for Jerusalem, the city of David, sometimes used to refer to God's ancient people Israel, sometimes therefore used as a, a reference to the ultimate Zion, to heaven. Verse 6, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now you can check out for yourself the original context of Isaiah 28, that last phrase in Isaiah 28 is will not have to haste. It means you won't have to run and flee to escape a reality that you hadn't calculated was coming. In other words, a shameful situation. So Isaiah spoke in that literal sense and as Peter conveys it, he cleans it up and gives us the meaning of it. You're not gonna feel shame in the end. So you can check out that context for yourself. But as a very contemporary ring to it back in Isaiah 28, it has to do with the leaders of God's people Israel scoffing at his word and taking refuge in the lies that they were inventing. What a hideous environment to be in. It's pretty much the environment that we're in in, in, in the Western world. People taking refuge in the lies that they're inventing. And God's solution in Isaiah 28 is the establishment, this picture of the establishment of a proper foundation stone from which the building of his people, his family, his house, is going to take shape. And that's what the cornerstone was. If you can bear the rain when you go out of this building this morning, have a look at the corners of the building. I actually haven't done this, but I would fully expect that there'll be some pretty big stones nearer the corner. Because they give the strength to the foundation and they give alignment to the structure. And here is Peter saying, 
this Lord Jesus is that cornerstone. Just in passing, it's interesting to notice that as Peter sees the Lord Jesus in the fulfillment of God's word in Isaiah 28, it's absolutely plain that Peter did not understand himself to be the foundation of the church. That might not have occurred to you, but it does to some of our friends who take Peter to be the rock on which Jesus said he would build his church. No, Peter is crystal clear. The Lord Jesus is the foundation, the cornerstone. The cornerstone that gives the strength and the accuracy to the horizontal and the vertical lines of the building. And we'll come to that in, in more detail. But as we've seen this cornerstone rejected by men, but infinitely precious to God, verse 6 adds a second human reaction to the Lord Jesus. So he is, uh, verse 4, rejected by men. But now in verse 6, there's a second human response to him. He is believed in by those who see how precious he is. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And again, for Peter's readers, shame was a big issue. Not that they had done anything to be ashamed of, but they were shamed by the environment in which they lived. They felt that horrible stigma of identifying with the Lord Jesus, who was the rejected one. And so they were rejected, and they were treated as those who were to be scorned. And the point is, there's going to be lots of shaming of the Lord's people in this world now, for those who believe in the Lord, for those who build their lives on him as their cornerstone foundation, who let the lines of their life take their alignment from him and from his word, there's going to be lots of shaming. And one of the things I've said before, one of the things we have to get used to as this generation of Christians is that we're not respected in the culture now. It used to be quite respectable to be a Christian. It used to be if you were going for a job and you wrote that you were a member of a church 30, 40 years ago, that would, have, that would have had a positive impact. Not now. You're more likely to be, oh, we don't want these nutcases being in among us. So lots of shame in this world, but at the end of history, for those who stay with the Lord Jesus, who stick with him, there's going to be a great reversal. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You'll not be sorry on that day. That's why we've got to keep looking ahead and understand that. Verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. Now, the, just a, a sentence on that. The first phrase of verse 7 is quite hard to translate from the Greek. I wouldn't know where to begin, but it is literally precious value then is for those who believe. Precious value then is for those who believe. That would be a, a clumsy way to put it. The NIV goes with the preciousness of Jesus to those who believe him, which is perfectly valid. The ESV goes with honor is for you who believe, probably tracing the promise of honor for faithful believers who face shame in this world, tracing it back to what Peter has said in chapter 1, verse 7. But look at that amazing next clause in verse 7. Now Peter is moving to quote from Psalm 118. He's ransacking the Old Testament in this section. Psalm 118, verse 22. 
quoted there in verse 7, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, you see, he's putting it the other way this time. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 4 as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Yes, God ordained from eternity past that his son would be the living stone, the cornerstone. But here put, Peter puts it the other way around. It's as he was rejected that he has become the cornerstone. Now this is a very important half of a verse. <laughs> They're all very important, but think about this. What this means is that those who reject the Lord Jesus, who refuse to build their lives on him, who refuse to let their lives take their lines from him, those who reject him must understand that, that their rejection of Jesus, no matter how deep it may be, no matter how widespread across the cultures of the earth it may be, no matter how personal and popular that rejection of Jesus may be in the in the culture it does not affect the Lord Jesus one jot it does not make him less precious and less valuable if you can be bothered listening to the news these days you will know that in our country and in the United States the politicians are desperate for popularity desperate for votes either to get into political office or to retain political office. The Lord Jesus does not need votes for him to be Lord and God. He does not need to be popular in our culture in the west of Scotland for him to be Lord and God. Peter said, our Peter, that we're, whose letter we're reading, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You get the point? We know what you thought of him, says Peter. You would not have had him as your king. But God has made him both Lord and Christ. He did not need to be voted in he cannot be voted out. God has appointed him. God has established him as the chosen and precious cornerstone. That's very important. If you're perhaps a young believer or a young person trying to develop a Christian worldview, and one of the things that slightly niggles at you is how unpopular Christianity is in the culture. And you might be thinking to yourself, but... How can this hold together? How can I build my life on something that none of my pals believe in, everybody rejects, it's a joke in the classroom, it's a joke in the university, we're just a laughing stock, we're just shamed for what we stand for. How, how is this going to work out in the end that Jesus is going to be the ruler? And the message is from this passage, it's a very important one. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Irrespective of all the views about him negatively on this planet for all of history, it does not affect who he is 
and what he can do. So when he's rejected by men, his value, his power, his truthfulness becomes no less real or precious. And in fact, one day those who rejected him will stand before him because he is the only foundational stone God has set in place by whom everybody will one day be adjudged. And that's what's being announced here in verse 7. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's quite an important announcement. If only those who reject the Lord Jesus, who will not build their lives on him, if only they could understand that the rejection of him, no matter how deep, no matter how convictional, no matter how deeply dishonoring of him it may be, it has zero impact on his eternal lordship. For those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Living stone, cornerstone. Thirdly, stumbling stone. Notice now in verse Eight, as Peter goes, he was in Isaiah 28 and then he went to the Psalms and now he's back to Isaiah and notice as he does that, Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14 he quotes here. Notice how he shows us the sovereign purpose that the Lord our God was achieving by that suffering and rejection of his son. So let's take it from verse 7 as we see there that, that quotation from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and says Peter, I've got another verse reference for you, and he gives us it to us now, from Isaiah 8 verse 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now that's an unsettling final phrase there, isn't it? I'm sure that would have raised questions for us as we previewed this passage at our growth groups on Wednesday night. What does Peter mean by as they were destined to do? Well, let's get the picture Peter is painting. This Lord Jesus is chosen and precious. He's a foundation. He's a cornerstone in God's purposes. But those who did not believe him, who took offense at him, they could not make him go away. They cannot make him disappear. So the picture is, when we read of him being in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, he's like that big immovable object in your room that you ram your toe into the middle of the night when you're trying to go to the loo or something like that, maybe too much information, but you're trying to go somewhere in the middle of the night and you forgot that you left the car battery there in the corner of the room and rattle right into it that is, a, that is an object of offense. You will have words with the object, probably, <laughs> as you hold on to your toad. But in all seriousness, that's what people do with the Lord Jesus. They effectively trip over him in their disobedience to his word. It's very striking, as in this section, very striking that there is no category Amongst human beings in, in world history, there's no category of non-response to Jesus. Oh, I heard about Jesus, but I didn't respond. That does not exist. You either build your life upon his word, or you smash yourself to pieces against his word. 
It's one reaction or the other. There is no way in this wide universe that the word of God and the person of his son can be avoided when you've been introduced to him. And that final phrase in verse 8 shows that even this negative reaction to the Lord Jesus, this rejection of him, this disobedience to his word, this taking offense at him, this stumbling over him, even that was swept within the sovereign, eternal purposes of God. Now, Peter had real personal history with this phrase from Isaiah 8. Turn with me for a moment, please, as we begin to close this now. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We're going to read a parable. Mark chapter 12, reading from verse one. I'll begin for the sake of time and you catch me. Verse one, Jesus then began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Perfectly reasonable. Verse 3, but they seized him, beat him, and sent the servant away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some they beat, others they killed. Verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, Peter was there when Jesus was telling this story. I wonder how that's... That parable lands with you so far. Perhaps you're fans of the TV show Traitors. Uh, I've not really got into it, but I know some people who have. And you've probably heard the, the, the blurb advertising it. This show is the ultimate display of treachery. But actually, ultimate display of treachery. It doesn't get close to what Jesus is describing here. Those who reject him in this parable that he tells they know precisely who he is he's the owner's beloved son he's the owner's only son we get rid of him we get rid of the father and everything is ours we can have everything that is rightfully his it will be ours he made it all but we can have it we can be God that's absolutely the natural reaction of the human heart to God we receive from him life and breath and everything else in this world he's given us. And our reaction is, I'll take everything you've given me, but I don't want you. You get out, I'll be the boss. That's the level of treachery. That's the level of determination and the rejection of the Lord Jesus we're talking about here. Verse 9, he goes on. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to another. Can you imagine the tension as Jesus told this story? And then Jesus says, verse 10, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. There's Psalm 118. And then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, what did they do? Did they repent immediately? No. They looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, friends, this morning, as we think about what it means that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, do you see, in the context of Jesus' use of that picture, the stone the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone, do you see the absolute, personal, willful, unrepentant when warned determination of those who reject the Lord Jesus? What a powerful parable. Jesus unmasks their folly. He, he describes exactly how they've treated him, God the Son, as he's come into the world. They know that he's talking about them and still they reject him and will not turn. But Jesus knew that this would be how they, they, they would treat him. He knew that, so that was he was experiencing that in this very moment. He knew that they would go on to kill him at the peak of their rebellious rejection. So it's pretty plain, isn't it, that they were destined to reject him like that and he was destined to die at their hands. And that's exactly what happened. So that's Peter's history with this verse he remembers the day when Jesus quoted it after telling that parable and he remembers the day in Acts chapter 2 when he said in verse 23 this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men this was God's definite plan he didn't have to coax his people Israel to reject and murder his son they did it out of their own determination. The hands of lawless men did the dreadful deed. But it was inescapably destined to happen like that by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter's got history with this verse. Listen, finally, to Peter in Acts chapter 4, immediately after he and John had restored a paralyzed man to health and they were being called to account for it just listen to this Acts 4 verse 10 Peter says let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by this man by him this man is standing well before you well and then he goes on verse 11 this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders that was bold, wasn't it? He takes the precise picture and he says to the people of Israel in that generation, this Jesus was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no one under, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you see, the rejection of the Lord Jesus was 100% the deliberate, personal, willful activity of those who participated in it. And yet, 
It was also at the same time the predestined definite plan and purpose of God that this would happen so that there might be a name under heaven given among men by which people like you and me might be saved forever of our sin. Might be saved of our rejection of him. Might be saved of our disobedience to him. If you're worried that you have until now disobeyed the word and rejected the Lord Jesus, and if you find verse 8 unsettling, that they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do, I am happy if you find that unsettling. If that brings a, a real urgency to your heart, I've been praying that it would. What should you do? I'll tell you what you should do. You should stop tripping over the stumbling stone and start building your life on the cornerstone. You should do verse four. You should come to him today. The living stone. Rejected by men. Maybe rejected by you up until this moment. But his rejection is the means of you being forgiven because he paid for your sin on the cross as he died at the hands of these lawless men. So come to him today. And if you still, as a believer, can't quite reconcile all the complexities of God's sovereign will and purposes and salvation, and we've only lightly touched on them today, if you can't quite get your head around how God could even use the rejection of his son and that would be destined, that disobedience that led to his death could be destined by God. It may prove ultimately inexplicable until we see him face to face. But in the meantime, my encouragement to you is to do Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then the psalmist says, the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. That marvelous contains a lot, doesn't it? It, it? it means I can't fully work God's sovereignty out completely. I'm learning in 1 Peter that he has his elect, his chosen ones. I'm now learning in 1 Peter that there were some people who were destined to disobedience and I've tried to set that in its context this morning but it sends my mind off in all kinds of, with a huge desire to be able to reconcile it all and pull it all together and say, ah, this is how it all works. But we're not God. The Lord has done this. The Lord does not hide his sovereign purposes. And it is marvelous in the eyes of those to whom he is precious. It's marvelous in the eyes of those who see, oh Lord, you took the brutal rejection of, my, of your son and you used that as the means of me being forgiven and cleansed and put right and given his record of perfection. That is marvelous in our eyes. So marvel at those aspects of his sovereignty that we can't quite fully fathom. Let's pray.
We ask our Heavenly Father this morning that having turned our eyes upon Jesus, he would fill our vision. We think of those this morning who up until now may have rejected him, may have disobeyed his word, may have treated him as though he is beneath contempt, just as just a curse word, just to be spat out on the pavement. Oh, Father, in your mercy, would you open any such eyes as you've opened ours to see how precious this Savior is and how you used the worst that this world could do to your perfect Son to be the best thing that you could do for us in order to give us grounds whereby we can be forgiven and set at rest and peace in your presence. Grant us to marvel at your word, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.